Well, hello, everybody, and welcome to this week's Bible Breakdown. Finally got two in a row back into the saddle a little bit here. Doing some, though, I will just go ahead and warn you that we're not having uh, kids ministry on the 4th. So there's going to be yet another void in all of your lives where there's not a Bible breakdown. But I will actually be preaching that day. So if you just can't wait till the next week to hear my voice, well, you can tune in on July 4th and uh, you'll hear it there. So uh, excited to be talking today about First uh, and Second Thessalonians. So kind of like I said last week, the gift of going through the Bible Project material, Gospel Project, sorry, material, is that we get to cover a lot of ground. That's also the difficulty because we're sometimes hitting a new book um, in multiple weeks. So the good news is we're going to get to talk about a book that I'm going to, I'm going to be honest. I have been to seminary. I have worked in churches for, I guess, about four years. And first and second Thessalonians are not real high on my list of books I know a lot about. So this study has been very profitable for me. I hope it's a little bit profitable for you as well. So we're going to kind of find out what was the situation with the church in Thessalonica that Paul is writing to. So Thessalonica is a city in uh, Greece, what is modern day Greece. And uh, he's writing them a letter that's a little different than actually some of the letters that he writes. It's actually got a little bit more of a favorable tone to it. So we're going to talk about that. We're going to talk about kind of what does this letter, what can we learn from this letter as far as what is Christ calling us to in our conduct and the church? And then we'll hit some little things along the way. But we're going to kind of be jumping around uh, in especially First Thessalonians and looking at some of that. And then we'll take a brief stop at Second Thessalonians and then talk a little bit about what it means. So without further ado, I'm going to start in chapter one of First Thessalonians and read verses six through eight. I think this will start to give us an idea of what's going on at this church. So starting in verse six, it says, and you became imitators of us and of the Lord. So for you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and in Achaia. For not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere so that we need not say anything. That's a pretty good, uh, that's a pretty good encouragement there from Paul. He's clearly encouraging these believers that uh, their faith has been something that is not just affecting their church, their city, but even regions, Macedonia and Achaia regions that, of the, that are nearby. I believe Thessalon- uh, Thessalonica was in Macedonia and Achaia being nearby. But he's saying, we don't even need to say anything because people have heard of your faith and how great it is. That is some pretty good encouragement. That is a pretty good feather in the cap for the Thessalonians. And so Paul, as he's going to go through this letter, he's also going to remind them a little bit just about how he treated them, um, how um, he and Timothy and Sylvanus. So Paul is writing this, uh, saying that it's from him, Sylvanus and Timothy, people who ministered with him in Thessalonica. Uh, Timothy, obviously the one who gets two letters written to him later in the New Testament. And so he's going to talk about how the joy that they had and how they were treated and also the joy that it was to treat the Thessalonians in a certain way and remind them of that and use that to encourage them as well. So moving down to chapter two, we're going to read starting in verse three, and he gives us a little snapshot of what it was like during their ministry to the Thessalonians. 
He says, for our appeal does not spring from error or impurity or any attempt to deceive, but just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak not to please man, but to please God who tests our hearts. For we never came with words of flattery, as you know, nor with a pretext for greed, God is witness. Nor did we seek glory from people, whether from you or from others, though we could have made demands as apostles of Christ. But we were gentle among you, like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. So being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves, because you had become very dear to us. For you remember, brothers, our labor and toil, we worked night and day, that we might not be a burden to any of you while we proclaim to you the gospel of God. So here's the little snapshot we get. Um, Paul starts out chapter two by saying that they had some trouble at Philippi. And he says, but when we came to you, you know that we came. Well, first thing he says, is we did not come to please men. We came to please God. So he's reminding them. And we see often throughout Paul's letters that he's he finds need to defend his apostleship, not because he's really paranoid, but a lot of people questioned his apostleship. And part of it was that he was the apostle to the Gentiles. That gave people reason to question him uh, in, in these people's minds. So Paul is often kind of, even in churches where he was received really well, which sounds like he was in the Thessalon Thessalonian church, he's going to often take these opportunities to defend himself, to make sure that they know what his purpose is. So he's going to say, he's reminding him, I didn't come to say something really sweet to you, just that you would like it. Um, but we were we were bringing the gospel of God. We weren't, this wasn't something that was from men. He talks about how he treated them gently. He has this really sweet metaphor. I, we were gentle like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. So from what I, what I can guess of what that means is that um, he didn't come with harsh criticism. Um, he didn't come to excoriate them or exhort them to uh, discipline them. Even we see that in some of Paul's letters. You think especially of the letter to the Corinthians. Well, he's not a nursing mother there. He's very kind of mean to them, but it's okay because the Holy Spirit guided him and he's allowed to. Um, but he's basically saying, we came in and we cared for you. We recognized the spot you were in. We cared for you. And then we just grew in our affection towards you. They, it sounds like there was a very real um, love and great relationship between Paul, Timothy, Sylvanus, and these Thessalonian believers. So he's reminding them, don't forget, we I care so much for you. We came in, we came in gently, and we cared so much for you. So don't forget that. And a reason that he is going to say this, I think, is something we'll talk about a little bit later. But um, then in verse 9, he's saying that he, Timothy, and Sylvanus, they worked hard so they wouldn't have to ask of the believers. So you may know this from Acts, but Paul... In some of the cities he would go to, he would uh, he had a trade. He was a tent maker. So that would be a way that he would finance his ministry. Now, this is just a we're gonna take a little side, little side quest here. This is a very important topic, I think, when it comes to ministry and funding, because there are some people that um, would say, well, yeah, anybody who's um, seeking to be a, a missionary or maybe even on a pastoral staff, they should have a job and then they should be, you know, bivocational and they should always uh, work to raise money and they shouldn't be paid by church. And then you've got people who say, no, under no circumstances should any missionary or pastor have to work, but they should be able to devote themselves to God's work in the church. Well, what we really see in using Paul's and examples, we see examples of both. So you see here that he's saying um, that they worked really hard. He says, we worked night and day, and he said, so that we might not be a burden to any of you. So he clearly felt like it, 
to ask them for money, to ask them for housing, to ask them for food would be a burden to this church. And so they chose to work and adopt a trade in the city and to finance their ministry, right? Sounds good. But we see in other places in Paul's ministry that churches are very generous to him. So one, um, he was financed by the church in Philippi. A little bit strange, right? That he's also talking about how he was shamefully treated at Philippi. That's from verse two of chapter two, first Thessalonians. He says they were shamefully treated there. Sounds like they repented a little bit. Um, but there's uh, a few instances where Paul is going to, uh, it's going to be referenced that Paul received aid from the Philippian church. Um, one is toward the end of Acts when he's arrested, they send him a gift, which we can understand to be money so that he could live. And then um, bring in the Corinthians again. Uh, in chapter 9 of 1 Corinthians, he's going to really lay into the Corinthian church and tell them, like, do we not, you know what, let's just, let's just read it. It's me telling you about it. it's not going to be nearly as good. Let's read this. So let's say, do I say these things on human authority? Does not the law say the same? So I'm reading from 1 Corinthians 9, starting verse 8. For it is written in the law of Moses, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain. Is it for oxen that God is concerned? Does he not certainly speak for our sake? It was written for our sake because the plowman should plow in hope and the thresher thresh in hope of sharing in the crop. If we have sown spiritual things among you, is it too much? If we reap material things from you, if others share this rightful claim on you, do we not even more? Nevertheless, we have not made use of this right, but we endure anything rather than put an obstacle in the way of Christ. Do you not know that those who are employed in the temple service get their food from the temple and those who serve at the altar share in the sacrificial offerings? In the same way, the Lord commanded that those who proclaim the gospel should get their living by the gospel. So I read that, um, A, because sometimes it's, fun to watch Paul be mean to other believers, which he's kind of mean to the Corinthians, like I mentioned. But again, he was guided by the Holy Spirit, so they needed it. They needed that forceful, forceful exhortation there. But I say this for the reason that Paul is also saying, hey, I could have made demands on you as an apostle of Christ that you pay me for what I'm doing. And he said, there's lots of examples in the law. Other temples do this for their priests. Like, why should we be the ones who aren't allowed to be paid for our work? So all this to say... Um, I think we have to recognize that the Lord is working in different ways, in different ministries, through different people, in different places. Uh, clearly in Thessalonians and even in Corinth, Paul felt like to ask them to finance him would be more of a stumbling block or an obstacle to the gospel than um, he thought that would be too much of an obstacle. So he said, you know what, I'll, I'll work a trade. I will fend for myself. Whereas uh, the Philippian church they sent Paul as a missionary other places and they provided for him. So I think we have to know that like the Lord is not bound by certain rules or our certain preferences. If one church or missionary agency does it this way and one church or missionary agency does it that way. Um, I think we, we can say if it's all done in service of the Lord, if it's all done in service of the gospel that they're proclaiming the true gospel, we can get behind that. So anyways, a little side note, I guess I, and probably a little bit too involved in that topic to be terribly objective, but I like that I don't have to make tense. So there you go. So moving on with the Thessalonians and less about me, um, Paul does talk about too, and I think this is kind of what I was alluding to earlier when how he is reminding them of how he treated them, how he feels about them. In uh, in chapter two, he's going to continue 
um, to talk, or I'm sorry, in chapter three, he's going to talk about how they really want to visit, that Paul really wants to come and visit the Thessalonians, but he's not been able to. So what Paul's going to do is he's going to send Timothy to kind of go and check on them. So Paul himself says he was not able to to do it, that he was, uh, that it was clearly God's will that he not go there. So he sent Timothy and Timothy comes back with a great report. And for that reason, Paul says, the the report of their steadfastness has been a huge encouragement to him in his affliction. Um, in chapter three, verse six says, but now that Timothy has come to us from you and has brought us the good news of your faith and love and reported that you always remember us kindly and long to see us as we long for you. For this reason, brothers, in all our distress and affliction, we have been comforted about you through your faith. So Paul is getting this breath of fresh air from this group in the Thessalonians, he's letting them know like, hey, your faith has encouraged me when I've been enduring hardship. That's that's nice to hear for, for the Thessalonians, you have to think that's got to be incredibly encouraging and encouraging for Paul as well to be seeing that. And so um, as he goes on, we, we really see in these next couple chapters, uh, he's going to give them some very general like, hey, I want you to continue to live a life pleasing to God. It is not in that vein of hey, you guys have been doing the wrong thing. I need you to start doing this. It really seems more, it's very, very general. doesn't seem very pointed. It seems like I just want to continue to encourage you to live a life that's pleasing to God. So that's what he's going to do in a lot of chapter four. And even even in that exhortation in, in chapter four, verse nine, he's going to say, now concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write to you. For you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. For that indeed is what you are doing to all the brothers throughout Macedonia. So he's telling them, I'm encouraging you to live this life, but if I were to write on brotherly love, there's no need for it because you have clearly received from God and are acting on what you've received from God to love the brothers. And so again, Paul is just really encouraging these believers, encouraging them in their faith, encouraging them with what they've done while still giving them some, hey, don't forget, live a life pleasing to God. He doesn't want them to become complacent. But he seems very pleased with how they have uh, grown and matured since the time he was there. And he's going to end uh, this uh, this first letter, um, the kind of bulk of it. Um, he's going to talk about um, when the Lord returns. And so he's going to, it seems like he may, it's possible just given the way that he set it up, that it's possible that Timothy came back and said, hey, one thing, they're having a little trouble with like their eschatology, their end times. They're not quite understanding like the day of the Lord and what it is. So what Paul's going to do is he encourages the, these believers that those among them who have passed away will be with the Lord when he returns and that those who are still alive will be with the Lord when he returns and that Jesus is coming back for his church. So he encourages them with that and then encourages them to that. He encourages them to remember if he's coming back, you want to live like he's coming back. And that's a good message for us as well. And it's, it's kind of this interesting part of our faith. And he's going to talk about, um, he's going to talk about persecution a little more in second Thessalonians. So in second Thessalonians, basically um, he's going to talk, he's going to encourage these believers with that. Basically those who persecute them are, will ultimately be punished by the Lord. This may be kind of an encouragement not to take vengeance or just an encouragement that they're doing the right thing. He's also going to encourage them to remain steadfast. And also he's just kind of warning them. 
there's going to be more persecution ahead. There's going to be more difficult times. So between these two letters, uh, kind of the ending of the first letter and into the second letter, we see these two kind of inescapable realities of following in Jesus. But these two inescapable realities are so hard for us to grapple with. And that's, there's two of them. Suffering is part of following Jesus is one. And this world is not our home is another. So this is something that believers for all time, you can see this is the first century. They're grappling with this. They're having trouble with owning that this suffering is not a punishment, that this suffering is not something that's outside of God's plan, but that it's actually something that God's using to develop them. And then they're wrestling with this hope of when the day of the Lord is going to be, when is Jesus going to come back? And so I think we I think we struggle with those same things and maybe the second one in a little different way. I think that for us today, we maybe know in our heads that suffering is a part of following Jesus and that it's important and that he's developing us through those trials. But man, we we work hard to avoid suffering. We do not like suffering. We can tend to pitch a little bit of a fit when we are in suffering. The irony of it is, as much as we want to get away from it, when we chose to follow Jesus with our lives, that was one thing we were absolutely for certain signing up for was that we would suffer. We had absolutely suffered. Jesus told his followers, in this world, you will have trouble. But what he encourages them with is, take heart, I've overcome the world. So he, the disciples then, disciples of Jesus now, we all have suffering as part of our life. It's part of following Jesus and you know what? People who don't follow Jesus suffer as well. Let's be real. Everybody suffers. Sin is in the world. The system is broken because sin has entered the equation. And so the system has been broken since then. Thousands of years it's been broken. Suffering is part of human existence. The difference with following Jesus is our suffering has a purpose. It's not suffering for suffering's sake. Our suffering is growing us to conform more to the image of Jesus. If we could say, I have one goal for my, my life, what I would like to do would be bring glory to God grow more into the image of Christ so that I can bring more glory to God. That's what suffering is doing. It, it gives us an opportunity to bring glory to God. And so when we do our best to avoid or escape suffering and we forget that it has value, then we're, we're losing out on opportunity, even though it does not feel like an opportunity in the time, right? I think we all know that. The second reality of following Jesus, another thing that we admitted when we follow Jesus is that this world is not our home. And yet, Oof, we will do a lot of things to avoid not leaving our home. There's a natural, of course, fear of the unknown, fear of death. And that's, of course, very natural in us. But at the same time, we cling to this world sometimes like it is our home. I'm not talking about going to the doctor or, you know, other good things to take care of ourselves. But sometimes our whatever our creature comforts here are, our, what makes us feel safe here, what makes us feel at home here on the earth becomes a priority in itself and rather than a, a way to live that we can ultimately use to glorify Christ with an eyes toward our eternity with him. We sometimes settle into this world or live in this world like this is our final resting place. But we have to know we've got a life to come and it's going to be far better than any comforts that we could drag together for ourselves here. We've got a home and the biggest difference is going to be, it's going to be Jesus is going to be right there and he's going to take care of sin. Sin is going to be defeated. We are going to get to see our Lord face to face. That's what we have to look forward to. So anything that keeps us tied to this world unnecessarily, anything that we pursue above Jesus that is for this world, 
um, is a waste ultimately because our time here we know is temporary. When we believed in Jesus, we said, yep, my time here is temporary. I've got a future and it's with Jesus. So it's this, this tension that we wrestle with um, throughout the Christian faith is that we know we're going to suffer, but man, we hate suffering and we don't want any part of it. We know that this world's not our home, but man, we sure try to make this world our home. And something that we all wrestle with and something that none of us will perfect until the Lord comes back or we see him face to face, face to face um, after death. Um, we'll never complete it here. But at the same time, I, I hope that I can grow, hope that you can grow, hope all of us can grow just in our, our mindset to view suffering, to view the future uh, in a different way. So that's something that these Thessalonians are dealing with that Paul's encouraging them toward. Um, and it's something that we deal with too. And it's just a reality of following Jesus. Now, the where I want to end today is talking just kind of in general about this letter and what we can learn from it. And ultimately, the biggest thing that stuck out to me from these two letters is this theme of encouragement. Paul is encouraging these believers in what they have done, what they're doing. He's encouraging them toward what he wants them to do. But you just see that he is really recognizing the the work of the Lord among them, and he's he's encouraging them in it, and he's encouraging them in how much he loves them, how much he cares for them. And the truth of it is, for all of us, encouragement should be an important part of any of our ministries. And I'm not talking about church ministries, those two, but any of our individual ministries, whoever your ministry is to, whether it be to your family, to friends, unbelievers, um, at your office, uh, in the church, whatever it may be, we should be, as believers, we should be encouragers. So the Department of Homeland Security, you may know this, has a little phrase that they like to use. If you see something, say something. And that, of course, is more about suspicious activity. But I think we should take us the same tactic when it comes to encouraging one another. If you're wanting to know, how can I encourage some somebody? If you see something in someone that you're like, wow, that's a great quality, say something. Encourage them in that quality. When you see somebody serving from a genuine heart with a smile on their face, like, hey, I just really appreciate your attitude when you serve. That really makes me want to have a better attitude when I'm in positions like that. Or you see somebody boldly sharing the gospel saying, wow, God has really gifted you in evangelism. You are encouraging me to be more obedient to the Lord. And I just wanted you to know that. Or maybe you um, hear somebody teach and uh, you think they did a great job. Let them know. You, I, I know as somebody who has taught, I think most people until at least maybe, you know, if you get really far in your career and maybe you don't care so much about those kind of things. Um, a lot of times when I'm done uh, preaching or teaching, I always am like, man, I wonder if that was anything or if that was just a bunch of rambling. Maybe sometimes it is a bunch of rambling. But um, the people that you think like, oh, they probably don't need encouragement and that they people can really um, just really bloom and blossom um, under encouragement. And sometimes people can kind of doubt what the Lord's doing in their life and think, ah, maybe I just am totally mistaken. Uh, meaningful encouragement can really help shape someone's calling and what the Lord's calling them to, because he uses his people um, to help people pursue the right calling. Uh, ultimately, people who are called to to anything, uh, whether it be you know ministry or um, some or other kind of field, career, it's it's not just like, okay, I go sit in my room for 20 minutes and then I just wait for the first career that pops into my mind. And I say, okay, that must be the one that God wants me to pursue. He uses uh, the church, the believers um, to come alongside you and be like, hey, I see that you've really got a talent for 
um, you know, construction. Like maybe that's something you could pursue. I see that you have a passion for, for building things. I see you have a great math mind. Maybe you should pursue engineering. Hey, I see you're so great with kids. Maybe you'd pursue social work. You know, whatever it may be, he uses his church to um, help communicate his vision, his intention. We, we need to rely on one another for things like that. Not solely because at the end of the day, we are humans, but um, the Lord uses people. Uh, and I hope that the Lord has used people in your life. I know he's used people in my life to encourage me toward my calling. And so I want to be a person that can, that can be said of me, like, oh, the Lord used him to affirm my calling because I was willing to say something because I was willing to give some encouragement. Encouragement is like a cold drink of water when you come in from out of the heat. That's pretty easy for us to imagine here this last couple of weeks, right? Either maybe you go on a walk for 20 minutes. Maybe you're out in the yard. You're um, doing some yard work. You come inside. You take a big gulp of cold water and, whew, man, it tastes so good. You never thought water could taste so good. That's what encouragement is like to the soul. And it go it can run so deep. Just like cutting words and, and cut downs and insults can cut really deep. Encouragement can really sink in really deep too and can really help a person in how they view one another. And if we in the church can't be encouragers when we can see the Holy Spirit working in other people, then who in the world can encourage another person? If we can't encourage someone for how the Holy Spirit's working in their life, that God is using them for work, then what in the world can be encouraged? But sometimes we get so self-focused, we get so caught in our own issues. And I say we, I hope you know, when I say we and I say us, I mean it. I don't think of myself as uh, dissociated from these issues. I know I struggle with this too. Getting caught up in our own difficulties, troubles, whatever it may be. And we just cannot, it's like we've got our hand in front of our face. Like we can't see anything else going around us. But having those eyes open to what the Lord's doing to other people, encouraging them in that, just like Paul's encouraged these believers. That's so important. So important. I just want to say for me, I know a, a few people in my life who've been big encouragers. Um, one's my dad. My dad is, um, he's just a great encourager in general. He's really encouraged me a lot, but he's, I was ta- talking to him on Father's Day and I was like, dad, you're just like, he's a natural encourager and he uses it. He uses the gift. Um, he doesn't just let it, um, just let it go for nothing. Like he, he uses his gift. He doesn't just let it sit there and not work. Uh, my grandparents always super encouraging to me, um, have been just such wonderful figures in my life, um, and have encouraged me all along my ministry journey and have been just so blessed by them. A, a good friend of mine named Zach, who I've known for about 10 years, um, one of the best encouragers I know. Um, some of you from Solid Rock, you know Jen Henderson, probably. She's one of the best encouragers I've ever met. Um, when I've been walking my dog recently, I see these like poor worms who have gotten caught on the concrete and, you know, they get all dried out and crispy. I feel like if Jen was to run across one of those and it was still somehow cognizant, I feel like she could make that dried up worm feel good about itself. And like, you know what? Yeah, things aren't so bad. I am a, I am a good dried up worm. I'm doing something here. Uh, she's just that type of person. She could, she can recognize and is willing, again, willing to use that gift to encourage others. So what I want to uh, encourage us to do is to have a have a heart of encouragement toward one another. Think of somebody in your life, somebody that uh, is meaningful to you, someone that you care about, someone that um, maybe you know is going through a difficult time. Uh, think about those folks and think of how you could encourage somebody this week. Think how you could speak into what the Lord is doing in somebody's life and 
be someone else that's coming alongside what the Holy Spirit's doing in that person so that they could also recognize God's work in their life. And, you know, hopefully what we'd see is that would continue to spur us on toward even more good works. So I think what we see in Thessalonians is Paul sees these believers. They're not having the issues that uh, maybe some of his other churches are having, but he's recognizing what God is doing in the church. And he's telling them, and not only is he telling them the good things they're doing, he's saying, hey, by the way, I really want to come see you. I love you. I'm glad to hear you're doing well. When I hear about what you're doing, I'm encouraged in my affliction. Uh, And that's just the kind of brotherly love, brotherly affection that we want to be living out of in the church. And I think when we live out of that rather than rivalry, conceit, division, um, then we show the world who God truly is and who he's really called his church to be.